So today's reading is Matthew chapter 11 verses 1 to 30 and that can be found on page 1516 of the Black Bibles. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to his little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thanks, Ellie. And good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Hunley. It's lovely to be here with you today. If you are visiting, thank you for joining us. We love having visitors here with us. Can I just say, if there are any questions that you have that come out of what I say today or from the reading that we've just read together, please uh, SMS them in. The number is on the screen behind me um, and we'll have a chance a bit later on in our service to answer any of those questions if you have them. So please make use of that line. A couple of years ago now, Meredith and I and the kids uh, went on a holiday down to the southeast of Australia and we stopped off uh, for the night at Narracourt. We were there partly to break up the drive to where we were going, to Warrnambool, but also I wanted to take the kids down into the caves that Narracourt is famous for. Now I think caves are fascinating, providing you have plenty of headroom and a clear way out. The idea of crawling through a cave is kind of my worst experience, my worst nightmare. So we selected one of the tamer caves, one of the ones that come with a kind of trained tour guide. Um, and as we went on this tour, we started descending the steps down, down, down underground. And to my great joy, we entered into a very large cavern. Plenty of headroom, no tight squeezes. After a, a few minutes of the kind of safety introduction that tour guides like to do, things like don't wander off from the group, don't break the stalactites that hang from the roof. Don't touch the stalagmites that are coming up. The tour guide asked us to turn off our phones and cover any watches or those sorts of things that might be making light. And she switched off the lights to the cave. And it was black. And we had meters and meters of earth between us and the sun above our heads. We had a bendy passageway taking us back to the entrance of the cave. And so there was absolutely no light in the cave. That's a pretty strange feeling, being in absolute blackness. I mean, normally at night, even in the middle of night, you've uh, normally got the glow of the clock radio or that little red light at the bottom of the TV or perhaps the orange street light sort of wash in through your windows. And so even in the middle of the night, you can normally pick up the big shapes in your house, the sofa and the walls and so on. We're rarely in complete darkness and then we were underground in pitch blackness and the tour operator asked us to put our hands in front of our face and I could kind of smell my hand but even right in front of my face I couldn't see it it was pitch black and then all of a sudden the tour operator pressed a button or flicked a switch I'm not quite sure how she did it but all of a sudden a spotlight came on and it lit up a limestone formation it was mesmerizing. In the darkness, you could see nothing else except this one limestone formation. It was something like 10,000 years of a water drip, dripping and calcifying. In the darkness of the cave, it didn't really matter where you looked. The only thing you could see was this limestone formation. Now, I can't replicate the darkness of that cave in this room now, unfortunately, but I want to do something for you, which I think is happening in this passage. I'm going to turn this light on. I 
And as I do it, I want to shine it on this question. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these middle chapters of Matthew. And I've been asking you to think through this question. What kind of a man is this? What kind of a man is Jesus? Matthew's been asking us this question repeatedly throughout the story that we've been reading so far. And then today we get to chapter 11, and the spotlight not only shines on the question, but also on the answer. Matthew tells us without doubt today that this man, Jesus, is the one who is to come, or he is Isaiah's suffering servant. It's like he's put a spotlight on this question and this answer for us today. So he's been asking this question of us really for the last three chapters. What kind of a man is this that he can heal the sick, that he can drive out demons, that he can raise the dead, that he can fix sight and deafness and lameness and muteness? What kind of a man is this that has authority over the wind and the waves? Matthew's been steering us over the last three chapters to this point. And here in chapter 11, he shines a spotlight on the answer. Jesus is the one who is to come. He is the long-promised Messiah. And we see this through the account of John the Baptist's disciples coming to see Jesus. Let me read it to you. Uh, Ellie read it before. It's Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 2. You can see it on page 1516. It says this, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So here we kind of have, don't we, John the Baptist, through his disciples, asking the question that Matthew I think, wants us to be wrestling with. And here we see Jesus himself answering that very question. And as he does so, he quotes from Isaiah, from lots of passages in Isaiah, actually, but primarily from chapters 35 and 61. And in doing so, Matthew shows us in a way that I think should leave no doubt for us as to who Jesus really is. He is the promised Messiah. He is Isaiah's suffering servant, which means he is the saviour of the world, the one that would save his people from their sins. He's the one who ushers in the new regime, the one who cures sickness and heals pain and mends relationships. He's the one who's making the world right. Matthew's been laying the foundations of this time and time again over the last couple of chapters. And finally, here is the answer that he wants us to know. What kind of a man is this? He is the Messiah. He's God's king. It's a wonderful conclusion, I think, to the last few chapters. If you're here today just wanting to know a little bit more about who Jesus is, here's a great answer for you. He is God's king. He is the one we need. 
But this little question that John's disciples ask, it does sort of raise a question of its own, doesn't it? Why does John send his disciples to ask for this reassurance? After all, John kind of is Jesus' cousin. He's the one who baptized Jesus. He should have been there seeing the Spirit descending. You would expect that of all people, John would have been sure who Jesus was. So why does John ask this question? I wonder what you think. Perhaps he's just doing it for the sake of his followers, his disciples. Perhaps uh, his question is designed to help his disciples switch their allegiance away from him, stuck in prison, onto Jesus. Perhaps, though, John was beginning to question his previous convictions. He was, after all, stuck in prison. He was there because he'd taken a stand against the way that Herod had stolen his own brother's wife. And they say that prison has a habit of making you think through the decisions of your life. Maybe John was beginning to doubt if Jesus really was the one who was to come. So John was also expecting, wasn't he, a Messiah who would come with an unquenchable fire. And while Jesus does bring about judgment, as we'll see in the next few verses, the focus of his ministry was really on the proclamation of the kingdom. His focus on was announcing that the age of salvation was at hand. And so John could have been confused. He probably was expecting the destruction of Rome. And yet Jesus comes as the suffering servant, the conquering of sin, not the conquering of Rome. I think this raises a a question that it's worth us thinking through as well. Do we see Jesus for who he really is or for who we'd like him to be? Do we see Jesus for who he is or for who we would like him to be? One commentator I read this week puts it this way. He says, everyone wants to make Jesus in their own image to create a comfortable Christ who makes life easier and simpler. It's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? Shaping Jesus to suit our own needs. And really the only reliable way to protect ourselves from doing this, I think, is to continue to return to the pages of the Bible to see exactly what Jesus is really like. To read with our own eyes about what he says and what he does. I'd love us as a church, Trinity Church Honey, not to be shaped by a caricature of Jesus, but rather to work hard to see him for who he really is. I think in our world today, there's a particular challenge for us in our society to do this. In years gone by, our society, the culture in which we lived, was largely shaped by biblical principles. And today, although a Judeo-Christian framework still underpins much of what our society does, we can no longer assume that our society will make decisions based on the reality of who Jesus is. John report, Jesus reports back to John in this passage in a way that can leave John with absolutely no doubt about who he is. He is the promised Messiah. The spotlight is shining brightly on his answer. There can be no doubt for Matthew's readers. Let me encourage you today, if you think Matthew has got it wrong at this point, go back and look at the evidence. Because one thing is sure here, Matthew is certain about who Jesus is. 
He knows him as God's king, the promised Messiah, the one who is to come, the one who will make the world right. And yet despite Matthew knowing all these things, despite all the signs that we've been reading about, the miraculous healing, despite Jesus' own proclamation of the coming kingdom, many failed to see Jesus for who he really was. Whole towns, it seems, in this passage, failed to respond as they should have. Maybe they didn't like what they saw in Jesus. Maybe they also, like John the Baptist, wanted a king who would conquer Rome. But whatever their reasoning was, they failed to accurately read the mood of the times. Most of you will know that before I was a pastor, I was an engineer. I'm reminding you of that because of what I'm about to say next. That is that reading mood can sometimes be tricky. It takes emotional intelligence, it takes energy. Some of us are better at it than others. If you're not an engineer, you probably have an advantage in this area, but my hunch is that most of us sometimes fail to read the mood accurately. Maybe you fail to pick the signs that your boss is under pressure and so you ask for an annual leave holiday on the wrong day. Maybe you've forgotten your anniversary, having failed in the days and weeks leading up into it to read the mood of the time. But even a rusted-on engineer should have been able to, I think, read the mood when Jesus is going about healing the sick, raising the dead, proclaiming the kingdom. See, Jesus is ushering in God's new age. Surely the signs and the miracles meant the mood was easy to pick. Understanding the difference between the time of celebration and the time of mourning, well, that's an elementary task. That's even a task that you would expect an engineer to be able to read. Here we see in our passage the difference between a wedding and a funeral or a celebration song and a dirge not being recognised. So with that in mind, I think... It's reasonable to read the middle verses of chapter 11 as a kind of critique by Matthew on the crowds and the religious leaders of the day. Despite the signs being there for the people to see, they made excuses about who John was and who Jesus was and they failed to take heed of the signs. They missed the proclamation of the kingdom. Perhaps their conversations or their reasoning went something like this. He's a great teacher but his advice just isn't for me. He's got an incredible gift of healing, but I'm not sick, so I don't need that. He's a wise man, but he doesn't look anything like a king. A better man I never met, but I don't want to follow him. He might change the way that I do things. It's a warning for us as readers, I think, as we're working our way through chapter 11. What kind of a man is this? If you've come to the answer that he is God's king, we need to make a choice in life, don't we? What do we do next? How do we live our lives if we know this is the Messiah? Let me read to you from verse 15 of this chapter. It says this, Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. At the start of this chapter, we're given kind of a a geographical location. It says Jesus was preaching and teaching in the towns of Galilee. And nearby are the towns of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. I've got a map up on the screen behind me just to kind of give you an idea about this. You can see the Sea of Galilee at the top. And if Simon zooms in, you'll be able to see these towns of Bethsaida, Chorazin and Capernaum. The towns mentioned are all in that region of Galilee, where Matthew places Jesus at the start of this chapter. Despite Jesus' teaching, despite seeing these miraculous signs, the people just don't respond in the way they should have. They failed, didn't they, to recognize the mood, to recognize the times. Jesus said they did not dance to the pipe or they did not mourn to the dirge. And most importantly, they failed to repent. And there is always a terrible picture. See, the coming of the kingdom, that demands a response. It demands repentance. And that got me thinking about our city, about Adelaide. See, there's something in this passage that recalls to me what happened in Jonah's day. I think it's probably because of the mention of a city and the mention of sackcloth and ashes that you see there in verse 21. I wonder if you remember the story of Jonah. He was sent by God to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go, but after an encounter with a big fish, he does enter the city of Nineveh. Let me read to you from chapter 3 of Jonah. I think the words are on the screen behind me as well, if you want to follow along. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. You could say it's a bit like Adelaide. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And look what happens. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And God relented. And the city was saved. So we've read today and over the last few weeks, this great proclamation about who Jesus is. We haven't seen the miracles with our own eyes, but we have read about these accounts. And I've argued with you, I've tried to show you that these accounts are historically reliable and historically accurate. These things actually happened. What does it all mean for you? Perhaps today you need to revisit these words. I don't want you to miss the significance of them. You've seen the joy that Jesus brings. Don't forget to dance for the pipe. You've seen the seriousness of Jesus' words. Don't forget to mourn for the dirge. Pray for our city that we too would be like Nineveh. 
that we would see Jesus for who he really is. Well, in verses 25 to 30, the mood again changes in our passage. In these verses, we see some of the great delights of knowing Jesus and of following him. Let me read to you from verse 27. It says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I wonder if you've ever heard it said by someone that God can't be known. I think those who say this are, are trying to say something like, God is unknowable because he's so large or he's so complex or he's so ephemeral or something along those lines that he's unknowable with our human minds and our human intellect. Look what Jesus says. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, God the Father can be known, but there is only one way in which this can happen. Through Jesus, he is the only one who is able to reveal the Father. I read this quote from Martin Luther in the week. I think it's a great quote. Martin Luther says this, he says, Stop speculating about the Godhead and climbing into heaven to see who or what or how God is. Hold on to this man, Jesus. He's the only God we've got. Now, Luther is not, of course, here denying the Trinitarian nature of God, but what he is saying is if you want to know God, then look to Jesus, hold on to him and follow him. Another great theologian, the Apostle Paul, puts it this way in Colossians. He said, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know about God? Do you want to know what God is like? Then walk in the footsteps of Jesus because he is the one who knows the Father. He is the one who reveals the Father to us. It's worth mentioning that when I say know, the Bible, I think, doesn't just mean have head knowledge of, but rather it implies a deep and intimate relationship. I loathe to use the same illustration twice in one sermon, but really, I think it works in this case. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know his character, if you want to know his love, if you want to know how he thinks about things, then shine a spotlight on the person of Jesus. Because the more we know Jesus, the better we'll know the Father. Because Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. I hope this is an encouragement for you today, that God is not unknown, that he is knowable, that he's not beyond searching. We can know him. We can have a relationship with him. And the way we do that is through his son. Well, the very last section of this chapter is also, I think, designed to be a great encouragement for us. Remember, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 9 and we had seen Jesus looking at the crowds and seeing them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And here in chapter 11, it says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Great encouragement for us, isn't it? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think if we really want to understand what's going on in these verses, we need to come to Matthew chapter 23. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23. I'm just going to read a little bit from verse 1. Because it's a great 
contrast which I think helps shine some light again on this passage. It says this in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Can you see the contrast here? The teachers of the law, they heap heavy burdens, cumbersome loads, and put them on people's shoulders. That's the law. And in comparison, Jesus says, Come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think we need to understand this in the context of knowing the Father. See, we know the Father. We have relationship with him because we are yoked to Jesus. We don't need to know him through the following of external rituals or laws. We know him because of our relationship with Jesus. Now this passage, of course, experience tells us, doesn't mean that those who follow Jesus, life is just going to be easy. Experience shows us that could not possibly be true. But it is worth, I think, acknowledging at the same time that life in the footsteps of Jesus as one of his disciples is a life in which real burdens are lifted. We know what to expect in years to come. We know with certainty about what matters. We know what lies ahead and we know where we're going. In chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew leaves us with no doubt about who Jesus is. You may not believe Matthew, that's a a different question. But at this point in Matthew's Gospel, we know with absolute certainty who Jesus is and what kind of a man he is. Matthew tells us he's the promised one, that he's the Messiah, that he's God's King. And that means that he is the way to salvation. He's the way to know the Father. Matthew's got out kind of his biggest spotlight, his literary spotlight that he possibly can use and he's shone it on Jesus for us to see him in this way. And having shown us who Jesus is, that he's the promised one, the longed for king, Matthew wants one thing of his readers, to respond to the promised Messiah, to respond to the call of Jesus himself, When Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Let me pray for us that we would do that. Father God, we thank you for the clarity that Matthew brings as to who your son is and who you are. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in the footsteps of your son, that we would know you better through that. Father, we pray for our friends, our family, for this city of Adelaide, they would respond to what you have told us today. Amen. Got one question today, um, and it essentially says, uh, just uh, to explain as best as I can, kind of what's going on in verses 12 and 13, and maybe a bit of 14 as well. Let me just read those to you from chapter 11. It says, For the days of John the Baptist until now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject 
to violence and violent people have been raiding it for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Um, I think what's going on here is a reference to the end of uh, Malachi. Uh, Malachi is the last uh, of the Old Testament books just before Matthew. Um, If you want to flick back there, um, come with me to page 1495 on your Bibles. Um, And let me just show you the end of Malachi. Malachi is a prophet speaking to uh, the people of the day, uh, essentially condemning them for forgetting who God is and for following his commands. Malachi chapter 4 starts this way. It says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. There's a fair bit of death and destruction and violence going on in this uh, section of the Bible. Then just come down with me to verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So I think what is happening, what Jesus is doing essentially is saying, you were looking for Elijah, he's going to come um, before these great destructive days happen, he's going to call for the people to repent. Well, that Elijah is actually John the Baptist. I think that's what's going on in Matthew chapter 11. You were looking for Elijah, here he is in John the Baptist. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus is saying. Thanks, Jane.